Section 34 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World's Story, Volume 11, Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 34. The Cutting Out of the Caroline, 1837, by John Charles Dent. In 1837, William L. Mackenzie, leader of the revolt against the Family Compact, took possession of Navy Island, two miles above Niagara Falls, and made ready to invade Canada. A small steamer, the Caroline, of American ownership, brought them supplies from Buffalo. Colonel McNabb, commander of the Canadian forces on the mainland, sent out a party of men under Lieutenant Drew to destroy this vessel. It must be remembered that the cutting out took place in the Niagara River, and that with careless management the attacking boats would have been in danger of going over the falls. The Editor Next day, which was the 29th, the Caroline resumed her trips to and fro between the island and Fort Schlosser. She was seen to convey several small cannon across to the island and plied her vocation to the evident satisfaction and enjoyment of her captain and crew. The Patriots, meanwhile, kept up a constant fire all day on the Canadian shore, accompanying the roar of their artillery with loud yells of derision. These accumulated insults were intolerable, and some of the militia officers murmured at Colonel McNabb's inaction. But as the day wore on, they became aware that something unusual was afoot, and looked forward impatiently for what the next few hours might bring forth. Soon after nightfall, preparations began to be made for the expedition. The command was entrusted to Captain Drew, whose experience had rendered him well qualified to undertake such a responsibility. None but the officers had any idea of the adventurous game that was to be played, and even they were not all made acquainted with the full particulars until the very last moment. Volunteers were called for, but the only information vouchsafed was that Captain Drew wanted a few men with cutlasses, who were ready, if necessary, to follow him to the devil. There were hundreds of the militia who would willingly have taken part in such an achievement, even had it been of the desperate nature which these words implied. But only fifty or sixty men were needed, and the requisite force was soon enrolled for the service. All the members of the Naval Brigade were included in the enrollment, and no one was permitted to take part in the enterprise except those who were accustomed to the water and to the management of a boat. The expedition at the outset consisted of seven boats, each containing seven or eight men in addition to the officer in command. A start was made a few minutes after nine o'clock. Colonel McNabb imparted his final instructions to Captain Drew on the beach, just when the men were at the point of embarking. It was believed that the steamer would be found anchored in Canadian waters on the eastern side of Navy Island, but this was not certain, and Captain Drew's instructions were sufficiently explicit to take and destroy the Caroline wherever he should find her. As has been observed by an actor in the stirring events of that memorable night, the last five words of that order nearly fired the continent as well as the Caroline. The first destination of the expedition was a point about a mile upstream from Chippewa, a short distance above the spot known as Whiskey Point. Thence, a final departure was to be made through the strait intervening between Navy Island and Grand Island. Captain Drew himself was in command of the first boat, which was pulled steadily up the river in dead silence. 
The night being excessively dark, it was necessary to hold a port fire over the stern as a guide to the others. Only five of the seven boats which had started from Chippewa reached the final point of departure, one of the remaining two having grounded on a shallow, and the other being unable to make way against the current, being provided with an insufficient number of oars. After waiting their arrival for 15 or 20 minutes, the commander of the expedition determined to delay no longer, and the five boats accordingly set out across the stream. Captain Drew's boat took the lead, as before. Upon reaching the opposite side of the island, the captain perceived that the steamer was not anchored in Canadian waters, but was moored to the wharf on the American side at Fort Schlosser. He ordered his men to rest on their oars until the other boats were alongside. Upon the latter's near approach, he said, in a tone loud enough for all to hear, The steamboat is our object. Follow me. The men then resumed their oars, and the expedition glided silently across the fast-flowing river. As they approached the Caroline, they perceived that she headed upstream and was well lighted up. More than two hours had elapsed since the departure from Chippewa, and it was not far from midnight. The rowers proceeded cautiously, making very little noise, and owing to the excessive darkness, the sentry on board the doomed steamer did not become aware of their proximity until they had arrived within 15 or 20 yards of her. In the first moments of surprise, he seems to have thought that the approaching boats were occupied by Indians. Who goes there? He shouted in peremptory tones. Answer or I fire. Friends, replied Captain Drew. He then hurriedly demanded the countersign. I will give it to you when we get on board, was Captain's response. Then the derelict sentry awoke to the danger of the situation and discharged the contents of a musket at the nearest boat. The charge went wide of its mark and struck the boat immediately astern, doing no harm. Turn out, boys, he shrieked. The enemy's coming. It was natural, under the circumstances, that such a command should be acted upon with all imaginable promptitude, but no promptitude could avail to save William Wells' property. The Canadians were in possession of the Caroline in less time than it takes to tell the story. Captain Drew and his men did their work quickly and well. Just at the moment when the sentry sounded his alarm and fired his musket, the foremost boat arrived alongside, and one of the crew grappled the steamer with a boarding pike. Drew, cutlass in hand, sprang over the starboard gangway and was followed by the other occupants of the foremost boat. The crews of the other boats boarded fore and aft on both sides. There was no general attempt at resistance on the part of those on board, and nothing deserving the name of a serious conflict. It was simply a vigorous kicking out of the doors on one hand, and with two or three exceptions, a terrified submission on the other. There were in all 33 persons on the vessel, ten of whom composed the crew, while the other 23 were casual lodgers who had been permitted to spend the night on board in consequence of the neighboring tavern being so full as to have no accommodation for them. Most of them had been wrapped in slumber until aroused by the cry and the fire of the sentry, and were so completely taken by surprise that they seemed to have had no time to think of resistance. They came pouring up the companionway from below and were driven ashore at Swords Point almost before they had time to realize their situation. Many of them shrieked with fright, believing that the last moment had arrived for them, and there was noise enough for a pitched battle. Says an eyewitness, There was the loudest hullabaloo I ever heard in all my life. You would have thought the two mighty hosts were contending for the victory. Shots were fired on both sides. Three or four of the steamer's crew, who were provided with cutlasses, showed a disposition to use them, but they were speedily disarmed and driven on shore. Not, however, until Lieutenant McCormick had been seriously wounded, while two others received wounds of less importance. 
The performance was at an end almost before it had begun. The most dangerous part of the expedition having thus been successfully achieved, the next thing was to dispose of the steamer. Richard Arnold, a vigorous young man who had acted as stroke oar of the foremost boat, went below by the captain's orders and started a fire under the boiler with the intent to get up steam. All the occupants of the vessel, with the exception of the two prisoners hereafter mentioned, having been driven ashore, Lieutenant John Elmsley and a number of privates were detailed to step upon the wharf and cut the steamer from her moorings. While they were so engaged, a fire of musketry was opened upon them from a number of American sympathizers stationed near the neighboring tavern. They proceeded with their work, however, undeterred by these demonstrations and by the yells which resounded far and near on every side. Elmsley himself, at the head of sixteen men armed with cutlasses, advanced about thirty yards toward the tavern and there came to a stand while the rest of his party completed the casting off. As soon as this task was accomplished, the entire party returned on board the steamer and immediately afterwards resumed their places in the small boats. Meanwhile, Arnold, as instructed, took a hurried run through the vessel from end to end to make sure that no one was left on board. He informed Captain Drew that all was right. Then, said the captain, set her on fire. Arnold hastened down to the engine room, took from the furnace the wood which he kindled, and applied it in several places to the woodwork of the steamer. For a moment it seemed as though the material would not ignite, but all of a sudden it blazed up with fury, and almost before Arnold could reach the deck, the vessel was in a blaze. All the rest of the boarding party had returned to the boats, and Arnold thus found himself the last man on board. He was quickly in his place in Captain Drew's boat, but was unable to take an oar by reason of his having received a heavy stroke from a cutlass on his arm. The boats towed the blazing steamer out into the river to prevent her from setting fire to the wharf. Having conveyed her about 200 yards from shore, they found it impossible to take her any further, owing to the power of the current. They accordingly cut her adrift and abandoned her. Down she went at a tolerably good speed for about 200 yards, when she became entangled in a bed of rush weeds, which brought her to a full stop for several minutes. Then she drifted loose, and away she went again, keeping well in to the eastern shore. But the flames had by this time pretty effectually destroyed the woodwork, and she had not been carried far down the river before her lights were quenched, and all suddenly became dark as the grave. It is probable that the metal portion of her sank to the bottom, as her engine was to be seen there in shallow water for many years afterwards. Small portions of her charred woodwork were carried over the falls, and minute fragments were subsequently picked up even in the lower reaches of the river. But the prevalent notion that the steamer was carried bodily over the Great Cataract is altogether without foundation. End of section 34. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Colleen McMahon.